if you can find wherever depictions of God that aren't like Jesus, somewhere something is mistaken. God is like Jesus. God has always been like, there's never been a time when God wasn't like Jesus. We haven't always known this, but now we do. Hello, everyone. Welcome again to the Word of Life Church podcast. We're here with another episode of the BZ Basement Tapes. Again, neither in a basement nor is it on tape. But we're going to have a great conversation. Uh, my name is Cole Novak. I'm the worship pastor here at the church, joined by our lead pastor, Brian Zond. Hello, Brian. Hello. Uh, also joined by Derek Reeland, our discipleship pastor, and he also oversees our online congregation. Hey, so, Cole. How's it going? Good, man. So glad to be here together today. Uh, we're having these conversations in the season of Lent uh, around the cross, but before we kind of get into some of the deeper stuff, I was curious, BZ, uh, loving music and literature and all the things, is what, what is kind of stimulating your brain here at the moment? About music? Music, literature, like well, a book or a... you know, I've mentioned it several times recently in sermons, but Septology by John Fossey is one of the most fascinating books I've ever read. He's a Norwegian novelist and playwright. He's my age. Um, and he, he was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature uh, this year, so, you know, that's, that's about as good as it gets. Yeah, big deal. <laughs> and his latest novel, called Septology, is a 667-page single sentence. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> How do you write like that? I don't know, but he got it right. What's interesting is he got, that's really how your mind works. Mm. And you're in the head of this guy for 667 pages. And um, I'm not trying to you know, give you a literary analysis on the book, yeah. but I found it mesmerizing. I mean, I, I get it that not everybody might be into this, but... There actually is a coherent plot with, with times in the past, and you learn the childhood of this guy. But really what it's doing is it, there's a doppelganger in it. Actually, there's several. Where there is another... There, there's a mirror image of the protagonist hmm. who, though, ends up in a very... His life ends up being self-destructive through alcohol. Mm. And that could have been the path that the primary character goes, but but he comes to faith. He he believes. Wow. And this is this is actually John Fossey's real life story. He's cast himself as this fictional character. The only wow. tweak, the only difference is he makes the character an artist, a painter, and he's a, a writer, but that's about it. And I'd love it's you know, you can. Re I read lots of novels, and one of the tests is: do you rem do you th find yourself thinking about it weeks after? Yes. Yeah. Some some are good. I enjoy that's good, but then I I forget about them. This one, I, I just keep thinking about. Yeah. It. And um, we're talking about it's. If someone's going to read it, I recommend it be read in Advent. I was going to ask about that. You'd mentioned the, that before. The book begins at the beginning of Advent. And ends on Christmas Eve. I will not tell you how it ends, <laughs> but it ends on Christmas Eve. And so it is, I will probably read it again next Advent. Yeah, so it's on my reading list for Advent this year. Yeah, That's what good art does. It sticks with you, right? Yeah. A good story, a well-told story. It just works on you. It's kind of like yep. 
Jesus telling the parables, right? Yeah. The parables are stories that stick with you. I love that. I think that's I think it's fitting for our conversation, talking about entering into the story. I, I want to mention the other book. I oh yeah, like, come on. The other book that I'm that I'm just finishing up is um, the memoir of Luke Timothy Johnson, one of the most notable New Testament scholars. Oh yeah, he's eighty now. I didn't know he was that old. He's eighty, fully retired from his academic work, and he's written a memoir. Excellent. Uh, the, the, it's it's called uh, the Mind in Another Place. Hmm. My life as a scholar. And wow. uh, it sounds like it might be boring. It hasn't been boring to me. Uh, you know, it's it's yeah. it's the life story of a, of a New Testament scholar that I found actually very interesting. Yeah, so. oh, I think memoir helps in that, like entering into a story again, like we're already talking about, is is a different approach than just hearing a, a list of facts. One of the things mm-hmm. I discovered in this is that Luke Timothy Johnson has a charismatic background. Oh, really? Yeah, through the Catholic charismatic. You know, he was a Benedictine monk, right? And then wanted to get married, so wasn't. <laughs> but then was really influenced by the uh, charismatic Catholic movement and was, you know, active participant in it in the 1970s. And I've made this point. It's 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 amazing how many great theologians mm-hmm. have a Pentecostal or charismatic background. Yeah. It's it's yeah. actually quite remarkable. It's telling almost. I think so. I mean, some of them hide it, <laughs> a little embarrassed. <laughs> Others of them don't. And, but if, if we don't begin from a place of actual experience of yeah. God, then everything gets stuck up here. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the best theologians are those that love the church and have a connectivity to the living God. And so having that experience in the charismatic movement certainly will give them that experience. I mean, if we talk about you know a brilliant theological mind and praise in tongues, that's the Apostle Paul. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, isn't it? That's right. That's right. That's where we got started. Yeah, I love it. Well, talking about entering the story, and, and with Septology being around Advent, we are currently in the season of Lent, and so the story that we're meditating on being the cross. And so these conversations are kind of being springboarded off of your new book, The Wood Between the Worlds. Um, and so kind of getting into a conversation around entering into the story of the cross. Um, in chapter three of the book, it's called God Revealed in Death. You talk about how the the pinnacle moment of seeing who God is, is at the cross. You kind of dive into that a little bit for us. Yeah, there, there's a little game I play with all of my books. Um, and I don't know if anybody's caught it. This is the 11th book, and all 11 books have a sentence in it that is exactly the same, <laughs> which is a riff on a line from Hanser's von, von Balthasar. It's not exactly his, but it's, it's similar to something he said, and it's, the line goes like this, being disguised under the disfigurement of an ugly crucifixion and death, Christ upon the cross is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is. That's in wow. all 11 of my books. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but, but, but it really fits that chapter. Yeah. Okay, so, so that, that, that line is in that chapter. You know, when I get, <laughs> when a book of mine comes out like this in, in actual, you know, you can hold it. One of the first things I do is I, I sit down and I read it. And I underline passages and make little. And when I found that sentence in there, I just drew a little smiley face. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this that's is a little so grin fun. to myself that I, yeah, I, I keep dropping that line in there because I just think it's such a. I'm going to say it again. I mean, we talk about the chapter, but this is uh, 
it, what it, what this is is a BZified Hanser's von Balthasar. Mm. That's exactly what that sentence is. But being disguised under the disfigurement of an ugly crucifixion and death, Christ upon the cross is paradoxically mm-hmm. the clearest revelation of who God is. Wow. That's such a good thought. That's why it shows up in every yeah. single book I've written. And it is a paradox, right? It God is, being revealed yeah. in suffering and death. That's foolishness. That doesn't seem to make sense at all, right? It's like all the other gods are revealed, you know, in, in brightness and yeah. in triumph and defeating their enemies. That makes sense. Right. But the God revealed in Jesus is revealed ultimately at the cross. It doesn't make sense at all. He's an altogether different kind of God. Yeah. Well, uh, you you have this phrase that is repeated um, in, in books and, and elsewhere as well as uh, God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus, and we've not always known this, but yeah, now that's, we do. Yeah, that's in all my books too, or yeah. most of them, from the time I, I started using that phrase. Because I just think it's, well, let's unpack this. The, 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 the sentence or saying or whatever it is goes like this. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There's never been a time when God wasn't like Jesus. We haven't always known this, but now we do. Now, if someone is prone to be argumentative, because there are those kind of people, um, they'll, they'll want to correct me on this. And they'll say, no, no, God is Jesus, or Jesus is God. Well, yes, I know that. Mm-hmm. But the point of confessing the deity of Christ is not to say, I know what God is like, mm. and Jesus is that. Mm-hmm. I know God is the omniscient, omnipotent, omnibelevenant, all the omnis. That's what God is. I already know what God is, and now I realize that Jesus is that. No, no, no. We don't know what God is like. And that's why John, right. at the end of his poetic prologue, there at the introduction of the Gospel of John, says this. And this is a provocative statement. No one has ever seen God. Of course, you have all these stories in the Old Testament. Abraham, Jacob, Moses, Ezekiel, Isaiah, mm-hmm. on and on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They see God. John says, yeah, I don't care. No one has ever seen God. The only begotten Son who is near the Father's heart, he's made in Rome. What John is saying is, I don't care what experiences and visions and theophacy, yeah. theophanies and all that that people have had in times past, compared to the revelation of God that we get yeah. in Jesus Christ, we've never seen it. So God is like Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is the perfect revelation of who God is. Yeah. The only perfect revelation of who God is. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus because I'm a classic theist. I, I don't believe that God is – I believe in the immutability of God. Yeah. In other words, God doesn't mutate. Right. God is not in the process of change. I know you know, there's some that – but I don't, just, I'm, I'm a classical theist. Yeah. I just kind of say what the church fathers have always mm-hmm. said because if God is subject to change, well, then you know, the very ground beneath our feet is moving. I mean, you know, what's, yep. There's no foundation for faith, for stability. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus, and I just reiterate it. There's never been a time when God wasn't like Jesus. But but I'm poking at something there. Yeah. What mm-hmm. I'm saying is if you can find wherever depictions of God that aren't like Jesus, somewhere something is mistaken. Mm-hmm. God is like Jesus. God has always been like – there's never been a time when God wasn't like Jesus – 
We haven't always known this, but now we do. And with that we haven't always known this, that, that basically could mean until the Logos becomes flesh, we haven't known it. Yeah. But it can also be your own experience. Right. You, you know, I, I didn't always know that mm-hmm. God is only perfectly revealed in Jesus, that there is never any contradiction mm-hmm. between the Father and the Son. Mm-hmm. The Son never acts as an agent of change upon the Father because the Father doesn't change. Mm-hmm. What the Son does is reveal the Father. Mm-hmm. We haven't always known this, but now we do. And that's really good news. Yeah. People really get excited when, they're, when they have that contemplative breakthrough and realize, wait a minute, wait a minute. God is as good as Jesus is go. good, yeah. right? God is as merciful as Jesus is merciful. Because violence has been done to the Trinity right. where somehow people with poor theology imagine the Son acting not in concert with the Father. Right. Or even worse, the Father acting in violence toward the Son. Yeah, right. <laughs> Huh. Right. Horrible. Right. No, and, and this is the theme that's it's consistent throughout the New Testament, but it's emphasized in the Gospel of John. So in John's Gospel, Jesus is always saying things like, if you've seen me, you've seen the right. Father. I want to do what the Father does. I want to mm-hmm. say what the Father says. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Father and I are one. Yeah. Show us the Father. How can you say show us the Father? <laughs> yeah. If you've seen me, you've, you've seen, seen the, the Father. How long have I been with you? Right. Yeah, yeah. So that was John's theological project. I mean, John's not just a biographer. He's got a right. theological agenda, and that seems to be his dominant theme, yeah. that God is like Jesus. And to acknowledge that we have all of these different depictions up until the moment of the Word become flesh of what God is like, and to be able to say how audacious an idea it is that all of these images we have up until this point are just insufficient, but now we have this perfect image. Yeah, and it's if if Christ is revealed, if God is revealed in Christ most perfectly at the cross, well, that's without precedent. I mean, human beings from the beginning, we've tried to imagine God or gods however we could, and there tends to be a recurring theme. It's in terms of power and conquest. Yeah. And so, you know, you can study the ancient, you know, history of the gods, the ancient pantheons, whether it's Egyptian or Greek or Roman or Persian, and they're all kind of the same. I mean, they take on a different, but they, you know, they're, they're in the heavens, they're mighty, they're riding in a chariot or riding a horse, they got a sword. They got thunderbolts. Yeah. Uh, you know, these, mm-hmm. these are the themes that just get recycled over, right. and they're, they're all kind of the same. A crucified God? A God who is revealed as a man, a naked man nailed to a tree? This is something new. Uh, this is without precedent. Yeah. And this, was, and this is what at least got the attention of the first century world. Now, they might find it a horrible scandal, mm-hmm. or they might find it as utter foolishness, Paul says this, but you, you do have to kind of have an opinion about it. Yeah. Because it, it is a shocking it's jarring. Yeah. That, that this is God. This is what God is like. This is who God is. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm still, 
I'm not feigning being freaked out as I say yeah. this. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I still yeah. think this is astounding. It is. But it's the entirety. It's the it's the incarnation, the life, the ministry, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus that is revealing what God is like. But there's something there's a there's there's a pinnacle in the crucifixion that mm-hmm. we most clearly see yeah. what God is like. And that's what's the most shocking and jarring and and irreligious because all the other gods of the ancient world they are god and they demonstrate through acts of power and triumph over their enemies domination but jesus is god who would rather die for his enemies than to kill his enemies and that is powerful and literally the you said the pinnacle and i just i'm seeing images of the cross in this room Christ being lifted up, the, right. the highest yeah. moment being, in, in the view of the world, the lowest possible moment. And that's that reversed kingdom thing going on. It's, it's incredible. Uh, it's made me thinking about a, a moment in the book in this third chapter. And I just want to read this short section. Uh, the Hebrew prohibition against making an image of God was a wise concession to humility. How can mere mortals possibly depict eternal transcendence without error? And to err in depicting the divine is to create an idol, a false and misleading picture of God. No image of God is better than a false image of God. Mm. Uh, you, you mentioned this, BZ, about how we can come up with all kinds of yeah. different versions of God in our heads, but we see God depicted perfectly in his son crucified. And... Uh, I think about you can see these videos online of people where they're asked to like draw a cartoon character from memory, like Piglet or something like that, <laughs> and they do it from memory, and then you see it, and it is just so horribly wrong. <laughs> and then they're finally faced with the actual image of that thing. Yeah. You have to think about that moment of Jesus. This is God. This is what He looks like, and that can be really unsettling because you might have built up this image of what you think God is like. What do you do with that? With that? Yeah, and moment? so so this is the genius. I would say it was the you know, inspiration of the Spirit in the ancient Hebrew religion. This they the ancient Hebrews were unique in two ways. One, they're monotheist. That's you know right. unheard of. And two, they have no image of their God. Mm-hmm. And that's also unheard of. Mm-hmm. But what that actually does, the, that there is no image, what that is, is that is the blank canvas. Right. Mm-hmm. The canvas is yeah. there, but there's no image on it, okay? And so that second commandment is this wise prohibition. Don't, 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 don't paint. We got the canvas. Do not paint on it because you will get it wrong. Yeah. And then you'll yep. create an idol. That's right. And then God, <laughs> through his logos made flesh, becomes the iconographer mm-hmm. and paints his own mm-hmm. image on, and on the canvas of human flesh. Yeah. Woo! And so, so we finally, and, and that's why, that's why the, the Seventh Ecumenical Council in 787 said, no, no, we can depict images of Christ because we're just following the lead (laughs) of God who, well, Paul describes Christ as the icon, Mm -hmm. the image of the invisible God. And so God became an iconographer and 
painted, if you want to say it that way, yeah. his perfect image through the flesh of Jesus of Nazareth, his son, and now we know what God is like. Yeah. And so that frees us up then to depict Christ and other mm. things. Right. And now that we have something to behold, I think that's such right. a gift in the in the, the enfleshment of God in Jesus. Yeah. And it was and God turns out to be surprisingly different than we anticipated. Yeah. Because <laughs> we, if we were, if we, the three of us were sitting around trying to create a religion, yeah. we wouldn't start with the crucified God. No way. I mean, no. Th- there, there's no way that would work, right? If we're trying to create a religion, but this is the revelation of God. Yeah. In Jesus Christ. I mean, there, there, there is, there is, you know, the valiant hero's death in battle. Right. Mm-hmm. But it, it, this isn't that. This is when. Jesus' own disciples are willing to go to battle, right. and Jesus won't permit them. He says, "No." This is God being revealed, and in death. He, so, so it, 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 in fact, it, ultimately, it is a battle. We just don't know that. <laughs> this, this is how mm. Jesus, in fact, wages war. Yeah, but it's not in the man. It's not with the sword. It's not in the manner of all of the either the gods or the conquerors, because they're mirror images of one another in the pagan world. This is. This is God revealed in weakness. Yeah. Yeah. If we try to create an image of God, you had said, uh, this was in, in the ancient Hebrew religion, is to create an idol. But I think we're, we create idols all the time when we at least imagine God being unchristlike. Hmm. Um, but when we, when we center our faith on the crucified God, as you're doing this in the book, it it opens up our imagination so that we can sit with this image. Yeah. And and so we're not one of the things you had said in this chapter is that it's not being we don't want to be stuck in historical critical interpretations of scripture. Rather, you use this word theopoetics, right? Yeah. We want to be open to have a contemplative reflection upon Jesus. Sometimes that makes me a little nervous because I wonder, like, what are the the constraints on that? Because I just for me as an individual, I don't trust my own right contemplation because yeah. I don't want to go the way of creating an idol. Yeah, I think I could do that too easily. Well, yeah, a lot, a lot of thoughts here. Let me let me start because I'm not going to assume everybody understands what we mean when, when we say historical critical. Historical criticism is a, uh, it really takes off maybe in the 19th century in theology. Not so much theology, kind of theology, but more in uh, biblical scholarship, where what they're attempting to do is reach the historical Jesus. Or if it's not Jesus, then the historical events Mm -hmm. behind the text. Mm -hmm. And so say, okay, what is literally factually going on here? I think... That approach to Scripture has some merit. Um, to understand Jesus in the context of his time is a beneficial thing. Sure. But that is not to treat – ultimately, that's not treating Scripture as Scripture. Hmm. Uh, it's, it's interesting. I think biblical literalism and some of the historical critical project that would be understood as more progressive are actually the same mm-hmm. – side of the same modernist yeah. empiricist yeah. coin, right. that, that what we really need to do is get to the historical foundation. So, for example, in this chapter, I talk about uh, in John's gospel, you have the story of the centurion 
piercing the side of Christ. And he says, and I saw water and blood, like a fountain coming out. Yeah. And so in in historical critical approach to the text, you you become a coroner. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And I mean, I've read these, you know, I've read these analyses and, well, yes, the cause of death for Jesus of Nazareth was a uh, hemothorax in the plural cavity. I mean, they they say this. (laughs) Right. Well, okay, that may be true. Is that all you're going to get out of that? Yeah, is that all we get? Is that all we gain? Is that, okay, so... First of all, I can promise you that wasn't what John was trying to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. John wasn't trying to give you a coroner's report on the cause of death. Mm. Um, and I even wonder, you know, and John John is like, he's emphatic. He says, I'm telling you this is the truth. I saw this. Right. And I think part of him saying that is I'm not sure anybody else saw it. Mm-hmm. Mm. I'm not sure that if you had been there as a journalist at Golgotha on Good Friday, you would have seen what John mm. saw. I think John was seeing maybe something mystically sure. that, uh, that he says is true, but it's not something that's going to show up in a coroner's report. And so then I give examples of how, how the church fathers, I use this word advisedly, but I'm still going to use it, played with that. Yeah. Sure. And I can't remember. I have to, have to open it up and... And look here, um, I, you know, so, some see, some see. I'm just, I'm not gonna try to find it. Some see the side, the, the door in the side of the ark. Okay, yeah. Some see uh, Adam's side open, from yeah. which then Eve. This is this is Christ and the and the bride of Christ, the church coming forth. I can't remember what what they all say, right. uh, but that's that's that approach. And that's a more mystical yeah. reading that I think – see, if you just stay with historical critical, that leads you to one meaning and then you're done, you're done. with it. And that's it's it. like and, – and I'll be honest, I'm not sure that the cause of death for Christ being a hemothorax in the plural cavity <laughs> does anything for me. Right. Yeah. You know, but if I can see, oh, I see a window opened up into the heart of mm. God. Oh, yeah, okay. And I discover that that in the heart of God, there's nothing but love. Mm. In the heart of God, even when the greatest crime is committed against them, it's forgive them. They know not what mm. they do. Yeah. Yeah. So um, a more poetic, a more mystical approach to the text is not some sort of novel, fanciful thing sure. that somebody cooked up, you know, 10 years ago. Yeah. This, this is reflective of the approach the church fathers right. took. And both your mystical interpretation and the ones that you quote from the church fathers, they're still working with biblical imagery. Yeah, but it's we're, still much, you, we're still with the text. With the te- but it's much more, much more poetic. And that, I think, is what has the power to transform us. Yeah. Well, I think it, it – because you have to sit with it. Mm-hmm. I mean, even thinking about John in that moment beholding this thing happening – None of none of the disciples got it in that instant that this is God perfectly depicted. Right. For them, they just thought that their rabbi was dead, that the story was over. Most of them, you know, go and are just disappointed and upset about it. But it it takes time to sit with it and to really like meditate on it. Where even John says, "I, I bear witness that this is the truth." It probably took. Years for that so, truth to kind of settle in. I want to I want to lean into this a little bit more. It's I'm gonna 
this doesn't pertain precisely to the cross, but it's part of the passion. So you have you have the you know Matthew, Mark, Luke, the synoptic gospels, and they all three portray Jesus in agony uh, in the garden. Then you have John, and John shows no agony of Jesus. Mm. And in fact, you have something very different. Uh, in John's gospel, you have an entire Roman cohort. Mm-hmm. That's 600 soldiers <laughs> coming to arrest Jesus. You know, in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's the temple police and kind of a, kind of a mob. Yeah. You know, they got their torches right. and, and it's the temple police and, you know, some scallywags. Mm-hmm. Uh, in John's gospel, it's imperial. It's 600 Roman soldiers and... Jesus goes forth to meet them. He strides forth and says, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth, I am. And they fall to the ground. Now, we could ask ourselves, is that, is that historical? I mean, if I had been there, if I'd been assigned by the Jerusalem Post <laughs> to go with the temple police to arrest Jesus in Gethsemane, would I have seen that? I don't think so. But that doesn't mean it's not true. Yeah. Right, exactly. John is saying, John is actually prophesying. He's saying even the mighty Roman Empire is going to fall at the feet of Jesus. <laughs> yeah. right. And they did. Right. So, so that's where, you know, if you, you take merely historical critical approach to that passage in John, you end up saying, oh, I don't think it happened. <laughs> well, yeah, it did. Sure. But it didn't. <laughs> It unfolds over centuries. Yeah. It's a prophecy. Yeah. Sure, it happens. Yeah. But if you stay stuck in historical critical, then all you end up doing is going, well, I don't even think that happened. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I don't want to do that. No. So, so there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Helpful. But you see how literalism mm-hmm. and historical critical are really yeah. the same, two sides of the same coin. That, that, that is not a coin that is valid, really, in doing biblical interpretation yeah. in the style of the patristics. That is yeah. our earliest theologians. Right. They, didn't, they called that kind of reading a carnal reading. Yeah. And it is. It's just a carnal reading. That the, the idea that you would approach the text without inspiration, without the help of the Holy mm-hmm. Spirit, to mm-hmm. see things that are not... Mm, Whatever, just kind of lying on the service or even beneath the service through historical critical inquiry, they would say, "Well, that's not that's not what this is about. This is God breathed. This is Scripture that is supposed to awaken all kinds of new ideas yeah. Yeah. in us." And that's a little bit what I'm trying to do with this book. It's to fundamentally miss the point exactly. to read it like that. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It's an invitation. It's very to modern. Behold. It's very modern, and you become a slave to the text. Instead of allowing the text to reveal mm. Jesus, who then reveals God, and that's where we have this is, our. I'm going to I'm going to plug Cheryl Bridges John's book. Yeah, uh, reenchanting the text. I made it my 2023 book of the year. Wow, reenchanting the text by Cheryl Bridges Johns. Very good. That that's you know that's a more scholarly mm-hmm. approach to what we're just kind of riffing about here. She is, by the way, is a Pentecostal scholar, and if somebody out there thinks that those are that's an oxymoron, <laughs> shame on you. That's not true. They're out there. She's Pentecostal, and she's a scholar. Yep. 
Well, we, we've kind of mentioned it a couple of times now, how you, know, you have those that you know, maybe become great theological minds, but have this foundation of a Pentecostal charismatic experience. And I, I think that is worth noting that you were talking about, you know, what do we do with these different ideas and, and what is the, the guiding kind of point for us? Mm-hmm. And I think uh, you've quoted, is it David Bentley Hart that says that wisdom is the recovery of innocence on the far end of experience? Yep. That we all come in with a, a certain experience mm-hmm. and there might be a moment of uh, wrestling with that or even wanting to get away from it. But when we can recover that sight on the other end, I'm thinking about John writing this gospel, what his experience might have been in that moment, but the way that it's kind of wrapped up in glory on the other side when he finally like puts that pen to paper moment, I think is really beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Amen. Amen. Well, with that, are there any closing thoughts from BZ or Derek, thoughts on the conversation? You know, I, I mean, I will mention this because I thought of it. I was riding in a car one time with Eugene Peterson, and Derek Vreeland was driving. That's true. And I asked Eugene Peterson, I said, uh, what do you think about your Pentecostal background? Mm-hmm. You know, growing up in the Assembly of God Church, what do, you, what do you have to say about that? And he said, oh, I think it's the best place to begin. Yeah. He said, I couldn't stay there, but mm. I think it was the best place to begin. Yeah. And I think that's interesting. Yeah. That by by stay there, I think that he meant that that world would have been too limiting to him. Maybe maybe too committed to forms of literalism and biblicism. You yeah. know. But the idea that God can be experienced—that's yes. the place to yeah. always begin. Yes. Yeah. So people who don't have any exposure to the Pentecostal tradition, you know, maybe they're Presbyterians or they're Lutherans or they're Mennonites or Catholics, or whatever. I think it's we've learned the value of expanding our borders a yeah. bit and and tasting the fruits of different traditions. I mean, of course, we can critique it, uh, but really, what value is that? I think if we find the treasures in these different traditions. It only adds to our faith. Yeah. Yes and amen. Well, Derek, BZ, thank you both. It's been a great conversation. I hope that you at home watching or listening have enjoyed it as well. Uh, We'll see you next time. Grace and peace.